you have a Bible, you can take it and turn to the book of 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 4. And we'll be looking at verses 1 through 8 this afternoon. Uh, after this Sunday, we will have one final sermon in this series on 2 Timothy. Um, we've given Sean Martin next week the list of names. And so, a little challenge for him, I guess. I don't know. Um, but he'll be able to wrap up the the book for us as well. So uh, we'll preach this week on 1 through 8, and then Sean will wrap things up for us. And as we've studied this uh, letter from Paul to Timothy, we've noticed the relationship that these two guys had, that of a, a spiritual father and, and son. And we've seen how Paul was encouraging and exhorting Timothy towards faithfulness in his ministry as the pastor of the church there in Ephesus. Timothy was facing some difficulty with false teachers. He was discouraged in this task. And Paul was writing to him to encourage him to say not to give up, to for Timothy to stay the, the course. I remember um, in somewhat recent history plodding along around mile 11 of the mini marathon that happens here in Louisville and hoping that the finish line would just somehow miraculously appear in front of me. Um, all I could do, I was watching my shoes. I can still see them just sort of going one in front of the other. And I can still remember a random spectator identifying me by the color of my shirt and saying something to the effect of, get your head up or, or look up or something like that. Because I was just looking at the ground and I, I must have looked pretty miserable. <laughs> but he shouted this out and so, and so I did. I stopped staring at the ground and I, I looked up. And I kept going. And I think that comment got me from mile 11 to mile 12. And then from there to my family in front of the Yum Center. And then down to um, the finish line and to the reward, which was a medal, yes, but also bananas and bagels. Um, that was the real reward, I think. Uh, this book is is full of commands, commands that encourage Timothy like that man told me to get my head up and keep going in the race. And I think that's what this, this final command is like for Timothy. Up to this point, we've heard Paul tell Timothy to do many things. Here's just some of the things that he said. He said, fan into flame the gift of God which is in you. Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me. Share in suffering for the gospel. Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me. Guard the good deposit. Be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Entrust these teachings that you've heard to faithful men. Share in suffering. Remind your hearers. Charge them not to quarrel about words. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. Avoid irreverent babble. Flee youthful passions. Pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. Avoid depraved, false teachers. Continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. These commands, these imperatives shape this book, and this final chapter of the letter is is no exception. In some ways, the commands that are in these eight verses sum up the book. They provide kind of a, a final charge to Timothy. And the way I think I'd like to summarize it this afternoon is like this. Fulfill your ministry by faithfully preaching the Word. That's our big idea that we'll work from this afternoon, fulfill your ministry. How? 
by faithfully preaching the word. You'll remember that the context of this passage is chapter 3, specifically verses 16 and 17 that Joshua preached for us last week, where Paul has just proclaimed the inspiration and centrality and power and sufficiency of the scriptures. And so now, flowing from that reality, we have this final charge where Paul says, fulfill your ministry, Timothy, by faithfully preaching the word. There's no doubt that this passage, this charge in particular, particular, obviously has a certain kind of relevance to pastors and to those who teach and preach the scriptures. Uh, we looked at the book of Second Timothy when we were in the Philippines, uh, Jake and I, and I preached a short challenge on this passage to the pastors that were there in the Philippines. But hardly any of that message has made it into this message because that was a specific challenge to those men who are pastors and, and while this is particularly helpful to pastors and preachers, I think this word also uh, applies to people who will never step into a pulpit to preach. It applies to us as individuals, but even more so, I think it applies to us as a church of understanding what our priorities are. And so as we go through this passage, I hope to, to pull that out. So if you hear that big idea, fulfill your ministry by faithfully preaching the word, and you think, I don't preach the word, so this obviously has nothing to do with me, I hope that by the end, you say, it does have something to do with me. So with that in mind, let's read together Second Timothy 4, 1 through 8. Look at these words from the Scriptures. Beginning in verse 1, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing and His kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, Fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. As we think about this command to fulfill your ministry by faithfully preaching the word, I want us to frame the passage in three ideas. Uh, I'll just give them to you now and we'll work through them slowly. Uh, they are these. First, the reality of eternity. And then we'll think about the centrality of preaching. And then we'll think about the call to be faithful. So the reality of eternity, the centrality of preaching, and the call to be faithful. That's kind of where we're going. And the first thing we see is the reality of eternity. Verse 1 begins with a, a bold and arresting statement as Paul charges or urges Timothy. Some translate this as a, as a solemn charge. It's an, an earnest command, and it's made in the presence of and by three different things. So before we get to Paul's specific charge, his specific command, uh, we hear the context. We hear sort of the background that Paul wants us to have for this specific charge 
And the background has to do with the reality of eternity. It has to do with these three pieces of that reality. So the command is serious because it has to do with eternal judgment and eternal reward. It's kind of the difference between giving a simple command to someone and giving a simple command after having said, this is a matter of life and death. If I told my children, go get the milk, they might do it. If I said, this is a matter of life and death, go get the milk, then they might do it differently. I'm not sure when getting the milk is a matter of life and death, but I'm sure there's a situation. But we we take this command as sort of that second type. It's set in this bold context that makes it serious. So as Paul makes his appeal to Timothy, he's doing it first, he says, in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, the one who at the end will judge all people, the living and the dead. It's a command given with this shadow of the judge of all the world hanging over it. That's the context of eternity, is that there's a judgment coming. In passing, I think it's worth noting always that the Father and the Son are set on equal ground here in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. There's a distinction in role, but not in deity. They are equally God. But I think the heart of the statement is that there's a day of judgment coming for all people, those, both those who have already died and those who will be alive and remain at the promised return of Christ. And when that happens, God himself will be our judge. No one will escape, will escape this judgment. Everybody will stand before the king of all the earth, before the creator and the Lord of all, and we will all give an account for our lives, for what we have done with them and for what we have done with the person of Jesus Christ. Friends, we will all die. Even on Twitter, there is an account that you can follow called Daily Death Reminder. (laughs) And once a day, it will send you the exact same message. It's this, you will die someday. Isn't that interesting? More important than Twitter, of course, Scripture assures us of this reality. Hebrews 9.27 tells us that someday, that, that the someday of our death is an appointed day. It's, it's already determined for everybody. And after that death, we will all face judgment. First uh, Peter 4.5 says that we will all be required to give an account to the judge of all the earth. And he is a just and he is a fair judge. He's a God, Psalm 7.11 says, who is a righteous judge and he's a God who feels indignation every day. That's a thought to wrestle with. But if we see God rightly and if we see ourselves rightly, then we will ask, who can stand before a holy God like this? Who of us in our sin could ever hope to stand before this judge on the last day? And the answer is none of us at least in our own righteousness or through our own good deeds. But Jesus, who never failed, who never sinned, has faced God's righteous judgment on our behalf. He has paid the penalty for our sin, and through repentance and faith, He offers us forgiveness. He offers us the hope that we can stand before God on the final day, not in our own righteousness, but in the righteousness of Christ. Apart from Him, our death will lead to eternal death. But in Him, death, as we'll see later, is actually just a departure from this life. Uh, 
into the presence of the Father and of Jesus, who is our Savior. God will judge all. And it's, it's in the, the presence of this righteous judge that Paul is going to make his charge to Timothy. That's the first part. But it's also a charge made, secondly, by Jesus' appearing. So it's a charge made in light of the judgment that's to come, but it's also a, a charge made by Jesus' appearing. By the reality that at any moment, Christ could split the skies and descend. I believe it's, I think it's this at this, at any moment idea that Paul is kind of trying to draw out for us. Um, we call this the, the imminent return of Christ. I-M-M-I-N-E-N-T. Imminent. Meaning that it could happen at any time. Um, and it's in light of this expected and somewhat looming return that Paul is making this charge to Timothy. And the third piece of this eternal, the reality of eternity is that it's made by God's kingdom. So it's by the reality of coming judgment, by Jesus' appearing, and by God's kingdom, by the eternal kingdom of God ruled by King Jesus. Now we can get stirred up by the political climate around us and who is in power and who isn't in power. Um, But it is God's kingdom that truly matters. We're really not to be concerned with worldly kingdoms. We're not to be influenced by them. Jesus is our king. And it's his, It's not fully here yet, but we live to build God's kingdom and, and really no other kingdom. We live under God's rule, knowing that one day his kingdom will arrive in its, in its fullness. So before we hear Paul's solemn charge, this, this sober command, Paul peels back the curtain and he shows us the context of it. And the context is this reality of eternity, that Jesus is the just and the righteous judge, that that his appearing and his return is eminent, and that his kingdom is where our true allegiance is supposed to lie. So do we see all that? Do you do you feel the reality of eternity? The fact that every person who has ever breathed the breath of life will stand before a holy God. That Jesus could return before we sing our final song. That every kingdom, including America, is just a drop in the bucket compared to the true kingdom. And every king, every lord, every president, every dictator that has ever lived will bow their knee one day before King Jesus. Because it's in light of that reality, the reality of eternity, that Paul gives his command. And you know what the command is? Preach the word. Verse 2. Preach the word. So that takes us from the reality of eternity to the centrality of preaching the word. The centrality of preaching the word. Brothers and sisters, as the guy preaching, I give you permission to feel like, given the buildup of verse 1, that this command is anticlimactic. <laughs> Think about the reality of eternity. And Paul says, therefore, Timothy, preach the word. In face of the reality of coming judgment, the appearance of Christ, the eternal kingdom of God himself, I think it's okay to ask the question, is preaching the word really the best command that Paul can come up with to give to Timothy? Are words proclaimed from a pulpit what we need most in our world in light of eternity? Some might say, don't we need a little less talk and don't we need some more action in our lives. I think about Moses when he was told just to talk to the rock 
and that water would come out of it. And he chose instead to smack the rock with his staff. Because I think in that moment, he just felt like words weren't enough, maybe. He wanted to do something. And we can feel that. Why are we all sitting here listening to preaching? Shouldn't we be out doing something? I remember in my hometown seeing a, a church sign that said they had they weren't meeting that Sunday because they were outside of the church being the church. I think alongside that we can think about the new response when people offer up thoughts and prayers after tragedies and people now respond and they say, I don't want thoughts and prayers. I want you to do something. We want action. I would agree in the sense that if prayer is an excuse for cowardice or if prayer is an excuse for laziness, then that's wrong. There are many times when we should put hands and feet to the prayers that we pray, but that doesn't take away from the fact that prayer is obviously the most important thing that we can do. And in a similar way, I think we find that preaching the word, while it can appear insignificant to some and even sometimes to us, is actually vital and important in our world and in God's church. And I think that's why Paul makes this command so central to this letter. In some ways, this whole letter is building to this command to fulfill the ministry by preaching the word. I... I, I think um, there's 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 times when we should be outside of the church being the church, right? Should we do that? Of course. But power in being the church is always going to flow from hearing the Word of God rightly preached when we gather as a church. I commend the church that canceled their services so they could go and, and be the church in their community. I would just say, you got a lot of days you could do that on. Let's reserve some time to hear the word so we're doing it out of that. Because I think that's important. The command, preach the word. Paul, Paul has in mind in this, I think at a minimum, this gathering together that we do to hear, to read the scriptures together, to hear them explained and applied to our lives. But it's also the proclamation of the gospel to those outside of the church. I think that's why he later tells Timothy to do the work of an evangelist. That's part of preaching the word. This preaching also includes the rebuking and the correcting of the false teachers that were outside of the church and that were inside the church. It includes the exhortation that Paul and Timothy would have done from house to house. Preach the word is, is a command that simply places the scriptures and the ministry of them at the center of the church. We should also remember that when Paul says word, his emphasis is not on something like this, a leather-bound Bible, there was nothing like that, but rather the, it's the content of the message of salvation through Jesus. Of course, that's what's here from beginning to end. It is about the salvation that we have through Christ. And so we can say, preach the word and we can mean the Bible, but the, the word is, is the word of God's eternal plan of salvation fulfilled in Jesus and recorded here in the scriptures. So if I'm confusing you, I'm trying to answer this question of why is this command the command that he gives? Why is preaching the word so significant? Because in light of all the unseen realities of eternity, it's the word of God proclaimed that God has ordained to bring new life into the death that's caused by sin. Let me try to say that again. In the midst of of the reality of death, of judgment, 
of God's coming kingdom, of the imminent return of Christ. It's in the midst of all of that. What we realize is that God has ordained the preaching of the word to bring life to people and bring salvation to save them from the coming wrath. It's the word of God spoken to dead hearts that brings life. In the beginning, the very beginning, it was when God spoke that creation was formed. And new creation comes through the proclamation of the word of Jesus Christ. Through proclamation of the word who is Jesus Christ. Romans 10.17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Which is why Paul asks just before that verse in Romans 10, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. You know, if you take a step back, it's really not that surprising that preaching the word is vitally important. Because we all know the power of words to build up and destroy. We all know that this idea of sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That that's ridiculous. Uh, we've seen the power of words. We've seen this in our study of James. And we saw this in our study of Proverbs. How powerful the words that we say are. And we know from our own life how a simple statement can shape us. The world knows this too. That's why you have motivational speakers. And if someone does something amazing, what do we do? We say, come and tell us about that so that you will inspire us because your words are inspiring to us. The words of a stranger, the words of a friend are powerful. They shape us. On this Father's Day, you might think of a word spoken by your father that shaped you. Maybe for good, maybe for bad. But words are powerful. And if it's true that the words of men and women have that kind of power in our lives, what about the God-breathed words of Scripture? What about the truth of a heavenly Father spoken into your life? Those words would be eternally powerful, wouldn't they? Words are powerful. The proclamation of the Word is central in this service. It's central to the ministry of the church because... It's the way that God has chosen for people to be rescued from sin and to be made right with their Creator. The Word of God preaches how God forms and shapes His new life in us. This moment of preaching week by week, it's not a stretch to say that it's eternally important. That it matters for eternity. This is why... Timothy is to make preaching the word central to what he does to fulfill his ministry. And it's why we have to make preaching and hearing the word central in our church and in our lives. I would say in particular, it means that whenever possible, the physical gathering with God's people to hear the word preached in the context of a service like this is something to be a priority. When I say preach, you need to listen to the preaching of the word. I don't think it means simply downloading good sermons. I don't even think it means just showing up for the sermon and then leaving when it's done. But that's probably a discussion for another time and we could get into that. But I think it does mean being here and hearing the word preached in this context. Again, another discussion for another time. 
So when is Timothy and when are we as God's church to preach the word if it's this important? Well, he says it's to be in every season, in season and out of season, when it's popular, when it's not. We know that there are specific times when you plant certain seeds uh, and plants, that's when they're going to grow. But we plant gospel seeds even when it looks like winter, when there's snow on the ground and we plant gospel seeds when the soil is rich and when the sun is shining. We preach the word when everyone is on vacation just as faithfully as we preach the word on Easter Sunday. Um, We preach the word when tragedy strikes. We preach the word when joy is overflowing. We preach the word in every season because we need the word in every season. We preach it in every season. We preach it in every situation. I think when Paul Paul is hearkening back to chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, when he says these ideas um, in verse 2 of reprove, rebuke, exhort, with complete patience and teaching. Reprove, rebuke, exhort, and teach. This is what Scripture is profitable for. And so Timothy and we can trust that no matter the circumstance, God's Word speaks to us. The Scriptures are sufficient for all matters of faith and practice, and so we don't need anything else to help us grow in our walk with Christ. We need the Scriptures. What we do need, he says, is, is patience. We need to do it with complete patience. Whenever we preach or teach the word, whenever we instruct people in the word, we need patience because we have to trust that the seed's going to sprout in its time and that we are faithful to sow the seed and God will bring the growth, whether it's seen in repentance and faith or in someone finally walking with the Lord in the way that we had always hoped. We proclaim the gospel and we do it with, with patience. So when do we preach? In every season in every situation, and in the midst of indifference. Verses 3 and 4 say, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. I don't think he, when he says, for the time is coming, I'm not sure that that's future, but probably is a reality now. Joshua talked about how there's ebbs and flows uh, with some of these things uh, when he was in chapter 3. And I think that's probably what's going on here, that there's times where people are engaged and they want to hear the word, and there's times when people want to hear what they want to hear. And we need to be careful to always be preaching the word. Because people have itchy ears. They want to have their ears tickled. Uh, They want their ears, when you have an itch, you want to scratch it and our ears itch, and we want to hear what we want to hear. Um, And if what the Word says doesn't scratch where we itch, then we can find someone who will tell us what we want to hear. That's why we go lots of different places. I I don't want to hear the truth. I want to hear what I want to hear. That's why cable news is so divisive. But that's another discussion for no other time. Um, I think because of this threat of having itching ears, the question we ask when we hear preaching is not, is this what I want to hear? But the question that we ask is, is this the word of God? And if it's the word of God, then even if I don't want to hear it, I need to hear it. Even if it's not scratching where I itch, it's what I need to hear. It actually tells me where I itch. Maybe it would be a way to think about it. I haven't fully worked out that illustration, but... Uh, to only listen to what we want to hear is to veer off down a path that leads us away from the truth. It says we will wander into myths that are meaningless. This is a danger. 
I believe, though, and I'm thankful that this command of preaching the word and the belief that the preaching of the word of God is to be central to the life of the church is what shapes Grace Fellowship Church probably more than anything else. I believe that. We have many ways that we can grow. But I'm encouraged by the centrality of God's word proclaimed um, in the present in this church and in the history of this church. It's why we have Fellowship of the Word gatherings. It's why we send people to the Philippines to train pastors so that they can teach and preach well because we believe in the power of God's Word. It's why we fill our services with Scripture reading. It's why we take time in small groups to discuss what was proclaimed the Sunday prior. It's why we preach through books of the Bible so that we don't simply focus on the the passages that we want to hear, the passages that tickle our ears, but we let all of God's Word speak to us. It's why nearly everybody who is a member helps in the nursery because we want everyone to be able to regularly be able to hear God's Word preached. And so this, the preaching and teaching of God's Word, is not a waste of your time. It's not a hoop to jump through. It's a fountain of life, and it's eternally important. I don't say that because I'm the one doing it, but because that's what God's Word says and because His Word is so life-giving. I think the simple application, of course, is to make the gathering gathering here to hear the Word preached a non-negotiable thing in your life, to realize the importance of it. I've been sobered by it as well, to realize the importance of preparing to preach and how important this is, and not to take it lightly. It's not about who stands up here, but it's about the proclamation of God's Word. From this command to preach the Word, Paul then moves to this call to be faithful. So let's think about this as we come near the end here. The call to be faithful. I, I take verse 5 there. As you, as for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. As a kind of summary of all the commands that have been mentioned throughout this book, it feels like that it can be summed up in this idea of being faithful to fulfill the ministry that God has given us. And it's a faithfulness to the end that Paul is calling Timothy to. And he does that by bringing out his own example of faithfulness all the way to the end of his own life. When Paul speaks about the reality of eternity in verse 1, it's not some sort of far-off far idea for him. We remember that he is sitting in a jail cell with a death sentence over his head, and he knows that his time on earth is very short, that his death is just as imminent as Christ's appearing He refers to his death in in two different ways. Did you see that in verse 6? I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. He compares it to a, a drink offering. He has been and he is going to be poured out as an offering in service to God. Paul has offered up his entire life as a sacrifice to God, and soon he will die as all sacrifices do. I think it's interesting also that he refers to his death as a departure. He has the threat of execution hanging over his head. But he says that when it comes, it's going to be like walking out the door when the party's over. It's it's going to be like stepping onto a train 
to go from one place to the next. So when Paul makes this command, when he's talking and he's encouraging Timothy, he's sort of on the platform, ready to get on the train to depart and be in the presence of God. And he's passing on this gospel ministry to Timothy and to others so that it will continue after he is gone. And as he does this, he's charging Timothy and he's charging us to endure to the end. It's a call that's made in the light of eternal judgment that he and Timothy will both face just as they're here as well. But it's not just the judgment of whether or not they have put faith in Christ, but it's also this judgment of how they have been faithful to their task, how they have handled what they have been given. Did they invest their talents in in eternity or did they bury them in the ground? Have they Has Paul been an approved worker? Has he become an, an honorable vessel? Will he be commended as a good and and faithful servant of Jesus Christ? And will Timothy? Will you? Will I? Have we been faithful? And will, will we be faithful to the end? I, it's amazing, but at the end of his life, Paul can humbly say, and he can confidently say that he's been faithful. He says, I've done it. I don't think he does it with any pride. He does it trusting that God has done it. But he says, I have fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. And there's a crown of righteousness waiting for me. He uses these athletic illustrations when he thinks about his life in ministry. Uh, illustrations of running a race and of, of boxing. He combined these illustrations in First First Corinthians 9. He must have liked boxing and, and running, I guess. I don't know. But he says in, in First Corinthians 9, 24 to 27, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. This comes out in 1 Timothy as well. The first letter that he wrote to Timothy, Paul says, fight the good fight of faith in, in 1 Timothy 6.12. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So he uses these same illustrations, but here in 2 Timothy, the finish line is much more in view. And he's in the final round of this boxing match, and he knows it. He's in the home stretch of his race. He's looking forward to the reward that is coming, and the reward is this crown of righteousness. And it's a reward not just for apostles and not just for pastors, but it's for all of God's faithful servants. It's for all who are running faithfully and looking for Christ's return. When I crossed the finish line by Slugger Field, they gave me a medal and bananas. And my kids would ask me when I came back, they would say, did you win? (laughs) And of course, in a race of 18,000 people, the point is never really about winning. At least for most of the people, it's not about winning. The point is to finish because Finishing is winning, and finishing faithfully gets a reward. Apart from those few people that get the major prizes, they have racks and racks of metal, medals, and they all look the same. Everybody's getting it. If you cross the finish line, you get the medal. And there's this sense in which if we are faithful, and if we remain faithful, 
If we endure to the end, if we keep the faith, then we will receive the prize from the righteous judge, just as Timothy would and just as Paul would. But recognize that to do that is a miracle of God's grace. We can hold fast to Christ because Christ is holding fast to us. Never get it in your mind that this is guaranteed. We could all be Demas in verse 10, who in love with the present world deserted Paul. If we remain faithful, it's because of God's grace. And by God's grace, as we keep God's word central, we can remain faithful in what he's called us to do. We can remain faithful as individuals and as a church. We can endure as a church. How many of the New Testament churches still exist? Many of them fell into apostasy and fell into unbelief and ruin. But by God's grace, if we keep God's word central, we can remain faithful as a church. As we continue to preach His word, no matter how big or small we are, we can remain faithful. And that's a miracle of God's grace. As individuals in the tasks that God has given us all, we can be faithful. My task as a pastor is similar to Timothy's, and so this passage speaks to me in a different way. But that doesn't make my task more significant or more holy than whatever task God has placed in front of you. God has good works laid out for all of His children, ordained before the foundations of the world. And the call is not to a specific task that everyone's got to be a preacher, but rather the call is to faithfulness. Faithfulness to whatever task is, is placed in front of you. Faithful as a employee. Faithful as a parent. Faithful as a child. Faithful in all these different roles that are in front of us and faithful to honor God in all of them. And specifically, I think in this passage, faithful to the proclamation of the word that's part of all of our tasks. That preaching the word is not something that always has to happen behind a pulpit, but faithful to live a life worthy of the gospel and to tell others about the hope that's within us. Faithfulness to tell our co-workers. Faithfulness to tell our family members about the hope of the gospel. Fathers on a Father's Day, are we faithful in raising our kids to know and love God? To hear His Word well. To live in righteousness. To live in the light of eternity. That's a task that's before us. Are we faithful in it? By the grace of God, we can all remain faithful to the end and fulfill the ministry that God's given us. There's so much more in this passage I'd love to bring out. But I think just to close, I would say as as God's children and as His church, when we are centered on the Word, we are investing in eternal things. And I pray that for us as individuals and for us as a group, we would always keep God's Word central so that we would, by His grace, never wander away from the truth, but we would keep it central and that He would be honored in that.